Hi, Jim here. Thanks for listening to this past episode of the Ski Podcast. Since releasing this podcast, we have a new supporter of the show. The Ski Podcast is now supported by Switzerland Tourism. They will be helping us explore some of the 355 ski destinations across the country, from famous names of Samaritz, Lax, Davos and Zermatt, to the lesser-known resorts that cover their mountainous land. We will be reporting on them and telling interesting stories about the people who live and work there. In total, there are 7,067 kilometres of slopes to ski and 1,800 lifts to ride and at least 80 of them are funiculars, which is good because I do love a good funicular. Well, there's a lot to do, so while we get on with that, you can get on with listening to this episode of the Ski Podcast. Thanks, listener, and thanks, Switzerland Tourism. Hello and welcome to the Ski Podcast, because knowledge is powder. I am Jim Duncan. I'm sat here with my mitts on to stop me from typing. What ski apparel have you got on, Ian Martin? Uh, Wow, I forgot to wear my ski stuff this morning. Really, only my prescription goggles. Fair enough. Prescription goggles, that's very helpful. Um, Right, so I should have said, actually, in um, award-winning podcast. What's all that about? We've got a BAFTA, a Sony, a podcast award? Uh, yeah, I suppose you call it a podcast uh, award. Um, Snow Bistro is a uh, blog who recently announced their content awards. Uh, and uh, it's awarded to the top British snow content producers. I, I have a suspicion there wasn't particularly a vote. It was just a, a decision. And... Uh, well, we've, we're runner-up podcast, the top snow sports podcast, 2017-18. Yeah, I did wonder, I, I tweeted them, it said snow content award, and I wonder if that was a pun saying that we just didn't have enough content and that's why we were runner-up snow content. Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty proud. A lot. I mean, I think, you know, not that I want to be churlish about it, but um, the Looking Sideways podcast, which was given best snow podcast, which is very good i've listened to it a number of times it's, it's very not good really about snow sport you know less than half of their uh, blogs are with people in snow sports so i think that they should be eliminated on a technicality and in fact we are the winners okay so um, you are listening to the ski podcast because knowledge is powder um the award winning first class number one winning podcast Does that yeah. sound better in yeah, yeah i like it Brilliant stuff. So, obviously, if you want to get in touch with the show, you can tweet us at the Ski Podcast, find us on Facebook, um, email us at the uh, email is um, the Ski Podcast at gmail.com. And of course, make sure you subscribe and share this podcast with all your ski friends or snowboard friends at all. Um, coming up in today's show, um, we're going to talk about um, could you buy a ski resort? Um, I'm going to find out what it's like to train to be a ski instructor. And we will be talking to an entrepreneur that thinks he's found a gap in the ski market. All right, Ian, um, I've got a question for you. OK. Um, fancy dress. Do you wear fancy dress on the slopes? Have you ever worn fancy dress on the slopes? I would deny having ever worn fancy dress uh, on the slopes, although I suspect there probably was a time when uh, when I did, depending what you want to count as fancy dress. I certainly went on a few university ski trips and uh, you tend to in- get involved in that from time to time. Do you actually what, do you have an opinion on fancy dress on the slopes? I think... I hate it. I really dislike it. Well, sadly, I'm going to agree with you. I can't stand it. I think it's just so, you know, so impractical. What's the point of having all of these, um, you know, great technical uh, pieces of clothing and not wearing them? 
Well, I just don't get how it makes skiing any more fun. I mean, if you, I have done it. I went out on a work trip to um, uh, a ski resort, obviously, and it was fancy dress day. And, you know, I made some effort because I knew everyone else was and I dressed up as Popeye and Fran made, my wife made the costume. You know, I was proud of the costume. But the moment I walked out the door with my skis on the shoulder, I caught a glimpse of my reflection and a little bit of me died there and then. Any reviews, Ian? Any reviews? I'll be honest with you, I haven't noticed any. I mean, there have been a couple more people who've rated us on iTunes, but they didn't make any comments uh, on there. So thanks for those for those ratings on uh, iTunes. But we'd love to to hear as well what you think about the uh, the podcast. I don't know about you, Ian, but not a day goes by when I don't find some online targeted ads trying to sell me a ski resort. I'm not sure what I purchased in the past um, that affects my online profile so much. Maybe it was the Lego ski resort I bought Connie for Christmas, or it could be, I don't know, um, that uh, ski resort I keep looking at. But um, it keeps coming up in my online feed, trying to sell me a ski resort. You ever thought about buying one, Ian? I haven't, but I'm fascinated to to know what this ski resort is that uh, is being offered to you and and why it's not being offered to, to me as well. You know, it could be in the market. So... There's a few up for sale at the moment. There's um, uh, Searchmont in Ontario, and you can pick it up for £1.8 million, which I think is pretty cheap. All right. Um, there's Blacktail Mountain Ski Resort, which is £3.5 million. Um, or there's Maple Valley, which is going really cheap. It's been on the market for quite a long time. And I think it's not even being run anymore. Um, and you can get that for $700,000, which okay. is quite cheap. And did you see in 2004, there was an Austrian ski resort that um, you could buy for one pound? I did see that article, actually, when I, uh, when I looked into this. That, that was pretty good value. Obviously, it was to clear the amount of debt that they had, which, um, which is one reason to do it. Um, and this is my favourite thing that I found out so far. Have you ever heard of Soldier Mountain in, uh, in America? I know. Um, it used to be um, uh, a not-for-profit um, ski resort, so obviously everyone shipped in a cooperative, as it were. But before that, Bruce Willis used to own it. Okay, okay. So a certain amount of uh, yeah, cachet from that. I mean, I kind of think this sort of thing would probably work if you were obviously a multi-millionaire or possibly even one of those billionaire uh, people and you fancied your own private ski resort where people weren't going to to bother you and your other celebrity very wealthy friends then you could buy you know spend a load of money buying the area and putting in you know upgrading the lifts etc then maybe it could work but possibly you know a lego version would would work if you really wanted just to operate a lift system or something like that and that could be a, a better value alternative that's really interesting. I never thought of that. So you're saying that maybe there's some nerdy people who might build their own lift systems, like yeah. you know, um, model railway fanatics. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you know when you go to a ski resort and you see in the shops there, they have those, uh, you can get your own little uh, piece bashers uh, and then the, the cable cars that you can string around the place. I'm sure lots of people do that. And you mentioned that the little um, snowmobile uh, skier, no, the uh, playmobile skier a while yeah. ago. Yeah, you could, you could definitely create your own uh, universe. Uh, someone probably, you know, who doesn't have enough uh, 
control in their lives wants to kind of be able to run their own ski resort and you know they probably even have uh, you know people working in the uh, in the mountain restaurants as well their own little empire um yeah a really disgruntled ex-ski employee yeah. who was so sad that he got the sack has um, built his own mini empire. Yeah. Say, um, say he did buy the ski resort. You know, say, let's say, for example, this podcast was so successful that it got bought by someone and you had loads of money and you decided to snap up Blacktail Mountain for three and a half million. What, um, what would you kind of put in it? You know, I've thought about this lots, and I thought I'd come up with something funny or... I mean, a band fancy dress, mate, that's that's a given. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> and maybe I'd make um, carrying your skis correctly compulsory. Yeah, yeah. Um, other than that, you know, it'd be nice to have a nice ski infrastructure. And if I had enough money just to operate it for me and my mates, you know, it would have to, you know, have some nice lifts. But I don't... I can't think of anything that really would improve a ski resort, essentially more than it was which i'm a bit sad about i thought i was going to come up with some really amazing concept there is, i mean I you know, maybe you, I'd let, maybe I'd if let you some... wanted to uh, equip it there's a website out there called resortboneyard.com have you ever heard of that oh right and if you go onto that they, you know you can buy different things like you can get yourself your own private peace basher or snowcat as they call them over there so if you can afford three and a half million for a ski resort to set you back another forty, fifty thousand dollars to get yourself a snowcat isn't going to be a problem. But they've also got lifts uh, uh, listed on there as well, so you can, you know, snap up a. Uh, uh, there's one on here for seven hundred and sixty-five thousand uh, dollars. A gondola um, in immaculate condition, um, located in Europe. Uh, so you know that's a that's a you know a bargain. You could pick up your uh, your infrastructure from there. You get like magic carpets and things like that as well. I think you'd probably you know I don't know how you ship a gondola, like a whole set of them. Doesn't actually say how many of them there are. Uh, how you get them from Europe over to Blacktail Mountain? But you know, have a look at Resort uh, Boneyard for uh, your bits and pieces. I will do. But I, and I definitely would be in charge of peace bashing at least one day a week. That would be a cool thing to yeah, do. Yeah, sure. Driving those around would be great. Although, who's going to actually complain about uh, the peace? Because gonna, who's going to be skiing on this mountain apart from you? Probably me. Um, you can come if you want, Ian. Um, I will hold my no, maybe properly I'll... and I won't wear a fancy dress. <laughs> maybe I'll be really benevolent about it and just, you know, give free ski passes out to um, the local kids and encourage like a, a new scene out there. Or something. I like it. I like it. You could, you know, think about that, that kind of personal, uh, uh, you know, resort in your backyard. Do you remember that guy, Red Gerard in the Olympics who won the uh, slope star? Yeah, 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 yeah. He had that snow park in his backyard. Remember that? So basically a kind of smaller yeah, scale down version of your own ski resort. Really all you need is a, like a smaller bit of a slope. You could probably snap up a bit of a, like a quarry pit or something like that around uh, in the UK that's no longer being used and convert that rather than buying a whole ski resort. Well, my um, my father-in-law does have a, a, a few fields and some of them are steep enough. And I have been looking out for some cheap Dendex, but I've not seen enough or afforded it. Ah, OK. Well, another thing they've got on uh, Resort Boneyard are snowmaking machines. Uh, so you can actually buy those as well. Uh, so you could use your, your 
father-in-law's field, his bit of mountain, and then buy yourself an Araco Superstorm. Uh, they're six and a half thousand US dollars, uh, and they're, they're uh, on wheeled carriages with 136 large nozzles, all in good operating condition, but missing parts of the covers due to high winds. That's fine. That seems like a reasonable price to pay. And who, who needs covers? I'll just uh, <laughs> just put a bag over it. It'll be fine. <laughs> Until the local village or wherever he lives, you know, realise their water supply is like a, a, a disappearing really quickly. And they, but they've noticed the new ski resort up the road. It, it could all work perfectly. It could all work perfectly, but you know the chances are it won't happen because all this sort of um, all these ski resorts get snapped up by the big companies now. Do you know Vale? owns loads and loads of ski resorts they, now. Yeah, they, they are, um, I don't know if it makes them the the Google of uh, of skiing, but they're certainly, you know, what was, I, I've forgotten now, which is the most recent resort they picked up. Oh, quick fact check, quick fact check. It was Mount Sunape and Okio Mountain Resorts, Vermont and New Hampshire. It, they own a lot of resorts. There you go. It's uh, Tahoe, Breckenridge, Keystone, Vale, um, Perisher, obviously in Australia, Whistler in Canada. Yeah, so yeah, I think a lot of people are kind of concerned about uh, their growth. Um, but that, that doesn't just happen in America, it happens in, in Europe as well. So there's what is there, the company, yeah, de company Alps. Itself, yeah. So they've got Maribel, Teen, Val d'Azer, um, Flame. Yeah, there's, Alps, that one um, there's another company. Yeah. yeah, I think so. So they're all, I, I suppose you need a lot of money. I think what I'm coming to the conclusion here in is I can't afford to buy a ski resort. I may be able to afford a couple of sheets of Dendex. I think that's right. Yeah, I mean, even then, the sheets of Dendex would probably be pretty pricey. And then the insurance, you've got to think about that as well, haven't you? But, it, it, okay, oh, one, one final question on the resorts. If you had your own ski resort, what would you call it? Would you call it Jim Mountain? Jim Mountain. Uh, yeah, why not? That's how unimaginative <laughs> I am. Right. <laughs> I'm Jim Mountain. Yeah. What about you, Ian? You thought of a name? Jim uh, Mountain. Well, no. Let's let's uh, go beyond that. Um, yeah, Powell Perfect Powder Mountain. That would you know, guarantee it. it's not very good one. I have to think. I'd have to think more about that. I'd put it into the ski resort name generator machine and see what it came out with. I am here in the heart of Maribel up on the slopes. I've been invited out by Basecamp, a ski instructor course provider, um, to meet some students and find out what it takes to become a ski instructor. So the first thing I wanted to know was why are the students on the course? So I asked them. Here we go. Can you tell me your name, uh, age and occupation? Yeah, Sam Flood. I'm a property developer and I'm 22 years old. And how come you decided to come and do this? Well, I thought I'd, uh, it's a bit of a break, because I'm a part-time farmer as well, so rather than stay at home during winter and things like that, I thought I'd make the most of it, come out here, try and uh, learn to do something different. Joe, and I'm a management consultant. Um, why have you decided to become a ski instructor? Midlife crisis, I think. <laughs> Not true. <laughs> no, I think it's true. <laughs> Is it something you've always, have you thought um, about it in the past? Yeah, I've thought about it in the past, but never really had the time, and got to that kind of age where I can take a bit more time to do certain things so then making the most of it. My uncle was a ski instructor here in Maribel for 20 odd years. He sadly passed away a few years ago and he said 
he always told me to go out and do it. He's a bit of a hero of mine, he's pretty cool. So that's why I wanted to do one. Uh, Poppy Ring 21, I'm an waitress. I've done two working seasons um, before and I'd get cross if I couldn't go out skiing and like decided that skiing was something I wanted to make into a career. So we had look online and this came up with one of the best rated ones to do. And I like the area, I love being in France as well one season, so I thought this is the one for me. As you can hear, there are lots of different reasons that people go on and train to be a ski instructor. I mean, how hard can it be? I caught up with Helid, who'd been through the course herself and now works for Base Camp. First of all, how hard is it to become an instructor? Uh, I wouldn't say that level one is that hard of a qualification to get. It's You don't really have... Well, yeah, your qualification, yes, you teach in snow domes, so you kind of have a restricted amount of space anyways. But saying that, you know, it is possible to fail it. You do have to have a certain standard that you can pass that information that you know or that onto someone else. Level two then is quite a bit more of a gem um, in terms of even the t- teaching aspect. You know, you've got bringing in a lot of safety because by level two, you can actually teach them on a mountain. So by, with a level two qualification, you can teach anywhere in the world apart from France. Two to three is a big, big jump. Um, the standard really goes up. Uh, basic level three is equivalent to one of the highest qualifications that you can have in Australia and things like that. So in some of the countries in the world, it is the highest qualification. And then by the time that you get to level four, that's quite, yeah, you're, you're doing good if you get to level four. Uh, so the Euro test is one of the parts that level four. Um, and you have, you have to do that. Uh, an ex-Olympian opens that and you have to do it in a certain percentage of his time. So I think it's maybe like 18%. So you haven't got that much time to miss out. And even if you're a millisecond out, you're a millisecond out, and that's it. So it's quite brutal like that. And what stage are you at? I'm trained to level my three now. So I've got my level three exam in three weeks for the tech. Out on the slopes, they're being trained by Bayesie qualified instructors who give them all the skills that they need to help them pass their exams. I spoke to Craig, the head instructor, and he told us what typical training was like. Well, here's the day, we're, we're kind of midway through the course at the moment, um, and what we're doing today is we're, we're basically getting a run of... Sorry, excuse me. On you go, dude. Yeah. yeah. Um, we're basically getting a run of short turns, which is what we're practicing at the moment. So we've been working them quite hard on, on what they need to be doing. Um, and today they've got to put it in practice. Okay, so all they're doing, they're having two or three practice runs. And then we're going to get a run on video where they have to perform the best run that they can. Um, after that, we're going to move to central theme, and after that, we're going to move to long turns and get them all, uh, get them all on tape today. And um, then we're going to spend the rest of the day looking at them um, compared to the criteria for level two, um, and start um, making decisions on what pathway or what's going to be the best for each student. So it's kind of like a midterm mock exam, if you like. How difficult is it to turn someone who is, you know, an average Joe skier into an instructor? Um, it just dep- it depends on their athletic ability. Um, it depends how much skiing experience they've had when they come in here. To be honest, so everybody's different. We've, you know, we've had people who have done very little skiing and come here and, and come all, almost all the way through the system in like five years. Um, it, it's just it's very dependent on the the level and the, the the ability to change that each individual student has. To be honest. And you work for Bass, is that right? Mm, yeah. And so you are the ultimate, ultimate instructor, instructor. <laughs> is that yes, right? the best. Kind of, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, we're, we're, 
Well, we're all uh, Bayesley Level 4s here. Some of us, like myself and, and Mike that's down there, are also examiners for Bayesley as well. Um, so we, we run all that sort of stuff. Um, as a Bayesley examiner, you're still just a Level 4, the same as anyone else, but you're appointed to, to be able to run those exams. So how long did it take you to train to get to that? Me? Uh, four years. So, so it's a fairly quick, swift... Fairly quick, yeah. So the same as, as Ridian, who's come all the way through the system that's um, started with us now, it uh, started with Basecamp, um, came through Basecamp and then through our sponsored system best for the for the three um, for the level three and four, a bit like Helid's doing. Um, and um, yeah, so he's come through in, in four years as well, with with a bit of a help from some of the summer seasons. So yeah, it just depends. It depends depends on injuries, depends on ability, and um, there's no real hard and fast guide for how long it will take each person. If you know what I mean. So it could take years and years, and it is a huge investment. It's like doing a degree in some respects. In fact, um, Basie have now uh, aligned their qualifications with A-levels, um, GCSEs and degrees. So it is a serious qualification. What's a typical day for you? Uh, get up, do a bit of skiing, have a bit of lunch, and then go to my lessons. Yeah, go for a few drinks afterwards. And what, what does the lesson entail? Uh, just developing your scheme really making sure that you can really hone in on getting your short turns good and get your long turns down and then a lot of central seats. now some of us think we're really good skiers and some of us maybe like me don't take criticism very well but all these guys on the course will be criticized constantly every day about their technique i mean how must that feel um, you know, you have to go back to basics and you think that stuff that you thought you could do really well, then you realise that you, maybe you can't and it really does improve your skiing. It involves your technique being changed quite a lot. It's been very interesting having skied for a long time, having my skiing completely changed by the new the sort of way you meant to be taught. How did you take that? <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's been interesting. Obviously, you've skied like a certain way for like 20 years, um, and then be told that you know that's wrong. Is it's been really interesting. It's really enjoying. Like, really enjoying it. The sort of learning, just learning how to ski properly. What's the what were the exams like? You're doing a, this is basically level two, isn't it? You've done your basic level one. Yeah, level one. It was intense. It was nine to five all day, every day for a week. Uh, it's nerve wracking. Never really had my skiing quite so judged before, which was. Yeah, no wrapping. So the exams are week a week long of exams. Yes, week long, Monday what, to Friday. And what happens? So you just it's sort of it's it's not really more exam. It's more of a like development week. That's that's what they call it because they still want, the examiners want to pass you. It's not something that you know uh, they don't want to fail you. They want you to pass. They're trying to make you better. Taking part in a, a level two course can you know set you back anywhere up to you know, ten thousand pounds. It's a, it's a huge investment. The reward is definitely worth it, in my opinion. But where do you go once you've passed your passed your test? I ask Will. Let's talk about the steps from Basie into well, not necessarily France, but the steps you need to take to then um, get a job. How how does it go from this level two that we're with now? Okay, so w- with our courses, we work in close partnership with companies like Interski in Italy, who do a lot of school-based trips. So we really promote the fact that when these guys complete their level two, 
they can go straight away the week afterwards. As soon as they've got the license, they've got everything. They can go to Italy and they can teach instantly. So we really try and promote that. Some people really take up on it, others are a bit more casual, but it's the same with helping people to go to the Southern Hemisphere to go, they can, you know, after doing the course, you can finish up here on the course at the end of March. Maybe enjoy the rest of the season, ski in Italy, maybe teach there for a few weeks if you want. And then you can go straight to New Zealand in May. Yeah. Go to a training clinic there and hopefully pick up some work and then, you know, then you're teaching, you're using the qualification instantly. You'd be surprised to learn how few people actually go on to use those qualifications or, you know, really seek out a job as a ski instructor. A lot of people do it for a gap year or, you know, just to better themselves as skiers. But let's find out what the people I spoke to at the beginning are going to do with their qualification. Hopefully move on to doing instructoring. That's the dream. That's what I'd like to do. I'd like to come back and do level three next, next winter. But, yeah, I'd love to go home and work on a dry slope for summer and then come back here for the winter. Yeah. To work in France, or do you think you'll move to another country? Uh, depends. Just depends where I can get get a job, really, after the qualifications. So. Yeah, I'm looking to, to go to Oz or to New Zealand uh, for this summer, but if that doesn't work out and I can't get any sort of work there, I just can't go travelling there anyway, and then reassess the options in a few months, see if I can come back to level three or not. So this is over. You've got your level two. What next? Save a load of money over the summer and come back for level three, maybe. So your, your goal is to become... You know, you know who really knows. <laughs> <laughs> it's a billion-dollar question. But, uh, yeah, like, well, get some money, see, you know, come back for level three, maybe. Yeah. Smashing well, get on your training, enjoy it. Thank Cheers. you very much for talking Thanks to me. Thanks very much, no worries, man. There you go, a quick overview of what it's like to become a ski instructor from people out there in Maribel doing it um, i was with Basecamp. you can find them at basecampgroup.com if you're interested in talking to them about becoming a ski instructor there are many other ski instructor courses available but you know i quite like those guys they're really nice um back to me and in the studio so did you um after listening to that ian you must have thought about becoming a ski instructor uh i mean in my first ski season i was a ski guide for blade and lines in fact, what they call back in those days an SAS officer, because Blade and Lines love that kind of thing, which is ski and apres ski officer. And you know, you got to ski around all day, but on piste, because that off piste stuff wasn't, um, you know, allowed. And I just found it a bit boring skiing around all day on piste. I think there's other jobs in a ski resort that are uh, that are probably more fun. Yeah, I've always had that same thing. But can I just go back a minute? You're a, a, a ski and Apres ski officer. Did you get a badge? <laughs> no, you got a uh, one of those classic blade lines jackets that uh, were coloured um, like the parrots, which is why they had that parrot as part of their logo. All right, I just had this imagine uh, like a, um, a, a security mall security guard with a badge. <laughs> Stand back, I'm an apres ski officer. Uh, yeah, you had to ski in a beret. <laughs> Did you really? Yeah, no. Right, I am joined by Paddy Griffith. Is that right, Griffith? That's right, Griffith. It's hard to get out unless you're Welsh. Yeah, well, I'm not. Uh, he is an entrepreneur and CEO of Husky Ski. Um, welcome to the pod. I know you're a busy man, so thanks for taking the time to talk to us. Uh, hi, Jim. Nice to be here. Um, Paddy's here to talk about his venture that could potentially, or will do, play a major part in the way we book our ski holidays in future. But first, Paddy... Can you tell us a bit about how you got into skiing yourself? Uh, yes. Um, yes, yeah, so I got uh, raped in as a kid. Um, my old man was American uh, and grown up in Detroit 
in the snowy wastes of North America. And he was, I think, a very early adopter to skiing. You know, he talked about skiing on wooden skis with leather straps and all that stuff out on the east coast of America. And then for when he, came, when he moved over to Europe and he had a family, he was determined to uh, spend as much time in the Alps as possible. So he dragged us out there as, as young kids. Um, I, I remember famously once he turned up with his leather boots and his uh, ancient skis and asked a ski shop to fit us all. At which point the guy looked at him and says, there's no way on earth I'm, a strap, you know, I'm attaching you to those skis. And he took them out, he chucked them in a skip <laughs> and he sort of said, now let's give you some proper equipment. Um, but yeah, so we used to go out, you know, family trips, and then I remember going out on a few sort of ski trips with uh, school and all that kind of classic British kid stuff. Um, but then I, I really went for it when I took a gap year, you know, after school before going off to uni, and I, I went out to Aspen in Colorado, where I managed to blag wow. a, a job uh, through some contacts. Um, so I worked by night in the Hard Rock Cafe in Aspen, and by day I, I kind of made bedrooms and, you know, Chip, chip snow for a big condo company. Um, but I had an amazing season in Aspen, hanging out with a bunch of college students uh, who had just graduated in a, in a trailer park. You know, our next door neighbor was the sheriff. And it was very sort of North American ski experience. But th that was the time when I really stopped being a kind of holiday skier and became a kind of proper passionate, you know, enthusiast. And I've, I've, wow, you yeah, really and I really enjoy kind of dragging my kids into the same thing and, and repeating history with them. I like the fact when you said you did a gap year, I was like, oh, yeah, I did a ski season in Maribel, chalet host. But no, that was a really good season. I like that story. Thank you. Yeah. OK. Yeah. The, only, the only slight regret is that I worked too hard. I had two jobs to try and earn some money. And looking back now, I'd rather have run up huge debt and skied every day. Um, but, you know, that, that's a learning experience. OK, so um, Husky Ski's tagline is oven ready meals and delivered to the door in the Alps. So you deliver to food to in the three valleys, Val d'Isère, La Plan, um, La Rosier, and also down into the down over to the Port de Soleil. So these are these are meals into your chalet. So what's interesting to me here is what have you personally been through to get to the point that you thought this is what the industry needs? Yes. Okay. Um, well, look, uh, this is the classic idea you have because you are a pissed off consumer. Um, you know, I, I remember I was sitting on a ski lift with my now business partner, Mark. And we, we were old buddies from university uh, and um, used to go skiing with each other quite a lot. And we were basically talking on this chairlift, having had a nice morning skiing of the five or six kind of tedious jobs we had to do that day. And it was just stuff like, you know, you get, you get the kids from ski school, I'll get to the supermarket, you pick up the firewood, I'll get the booze shop, and then I'll book a restaurant for tonight. And it was this kind of classic sort of, list of chores well, so historically you were a self-catered sort of holiday maker I, 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 to honest, over the years i've done it all i've done the blingy stuff where you go into the beautifully you know chef catered chalet and everything's laid on and that's when i got a taste of actually what skiing could feel like if you sorted all the stuff out mm -hmm. um, i've also done the totally kind of super budget 10 people crammed into a self-catering apartment really made for four people uh and done it that way you know the, the bowls of dolmio pasta yeah. Um, and I've sort of done everything in between. Um, I, I think my spiritual home in the Alps is as a self-catered person because, uh, and really that's the ethos of Husky, which is I, I think people these days want flexibility. You know, you, you've probably booked your own flights, you've probably scalped your own uh, accommodation, and actually you're a sort of self-determined digital consumer. And I don't necessarily want to be kind of in someone's plan, you know, with a set menu and uh, 
you know, th that lack of ability to say, actually, you know what, let's go out or let's stay later or let's eat at home. Um, so, so that's that's really, I think, when ski ski holidays feel really relaxed and fun. So you're almost yeah. pitching it that you're the, the, the accompaniment to an Airbnb ski holiday. Yeah, like, well, I, I do. You know, it's what you think, but I, I feel like that's the natural direction that the industry is going in. You know, I think there will always be the very high end, um, super bling chalet holidays available, but for the mass market, I think customers are being a bit more independent, and they're looking to kind of plug all the elements together themselves. I think most skiers these days have done it enough that they don't really want to be kind of repped and, and kind of supported as much. Um, and so, yeah, so our vision, I guess, is, is that there is a huge space in between the classic catered and the kind of no frills self catered, where what you want is a great space with the flexibility to then do everything you want to do. Um, so and, I, I, and I don't think people want to go on holiday and, and cook dinner every night. You know, I, I think people want to have some of that, that assistance. So how late can I leave it to order? Can I order like uh, no, half most, an hour before? Yeah, well, not not we're not that good yet. We have looked at drone delivery and stuff like that for like instant deliveries. But no, um, if you, we can deliver same day. Um, you know, basically this season, I mean, we've this is our third season. We'll deliver to every resort in France um, every day. Um, can I ask? Most people I know who work in the ski industry have got into it for love, um, the passion of skiing. I kind of feel that you've gone, oh, here's an actual business that will work. I'm going to get involved. Is that right? Uh, yes and no. Um, you know, if you ask most of the sort of sensible business people I know in London, they think me building a ski business is a crazy idea. They go, you know, why go after a sort of passion project like that? You know, this is a, you know, a, a limited business. It's a seasonal business. You know, no one's ever going to make money in this world. Um, so it's definitely a hybrid. You know, I don't think I'd be here you know, excited about food delivery if it wasn't in the Alps, you know, which is a place that I love being in and I really want to build my future there. So there's a huge amount of passion which has got us here. But we also think that the only way to build a business and make it work is by being super professional. You know, we have to lift the service standards of this industry so that we are better than anyone else out there. And, and I think, you know, everyone in our business is there because they've, they've had professional backgrounds and, and know what business is about. Um, so, you know, it's not a money-making play, really. I don't see this as something that's going to, you know, make me rich. But I'm hoping it's going to be give, be something that is successful, that makes me proud to own and run as a business, but that will give me an ability to live in the Alps one day and, and have a network and be part of something. Skiing is about being happy, so, you know, that's the goal, I think. Um, the travel industry, the ski travel industry specifically, we've talked about, doesn't feel like it's changed for a long time. It's dominated by, you know, a, a handful of companies. What do you think is going to change over the next few years? And what do you think of those external factors that are going to come in and drive those changes? Yeah, you're right. It has felt pretty traditional, but I, I do feel things are going to start to accelerate both by, you know, opportunity and threat. You know, I, I look at the range of choices people have these days for winter breaks, and it's such a bigger market and there's so much more choice that the old fashioned thing that, you know, you go skiing in winter and you hit the beach in summer it just isn't true anymore. So I think innovation is really, really important. I think, you know, the industry has to start to kind of reimagine itself. Um, the other thing is you look at stats that we've seen recently where you see how old the average skier in the Alps is. Um, and I think partly recession has driven that. But it, it, it's very worrying to an industry if the median age of the industry is over 60. Um, and so there's a huge job to bring in younger skiers. Um, 
But and, and then the other big challenge for the UK industry is Brexit, which is you know that the implications of Brexit are to change the the employment rules around what you pay to hire employees, you know, working the seasons. Um, and if the rules go through as predicted, um, that's going to mean that sort of virtual services or outsourced services like we're offering are going to become more and more important because um, hiring those staff in-house is no longer going to be cost efficient. So I think there's a huge amount of kind of, that's all like external stuff. But then I also think internally, I, I think this is an incredibly, you know, brilliant industry because like you said, it's full of really passionate people. I think the product is amazing. Um, I think we could diversify the product a lot. You know, one of my big bugbears is, you know, watching, you know, Brits who go one, one week a year and their week is basically going up and down on the same old runs. You know, the, the parents haven't learned anything new, haven't been to ski school for 20 years. Um, but they have a couple of hot chocolates and a few rosés and, and that's their week. And I feel like the industry could do it really well to basically show those people that, A, you should never stop learning. Um, and, and thinking about actually coaching and guiding for, for older skiers. Also bringing in new disciplines, um, so things like cross-country, things like climbing, um, also just mountain awareness, you know, helping people really understand the environment they're in. Um, would just make the whole experience more special for more people. You know, most people who love skiing have gone on that, that learning journey. And I think the, the sort of mass, the mass part of the, the industry, it has kind of got a bit stuck in a rut. And they do more or less the same thing each year that, you know, they might change resort. Um, but pretty much the shape of the holiday is the same, um, which is, you know, it ain't broke. So maybe we don't have to fix it. But I feel like if we're going to keep bringing people back uh, and bringing people for more than a week a year, um, we've got to offer them, you know, everything that mountains has to offer, not just a kind of classic kind of uh, piece skiing experience. Interesting. Interesting. Because um, we were talking about this on the podcast the other week, and Ian Ian would disagree if he was here. Right, it's coming up to five to lunchtime. Um, just quickly, what am I going to eat husky wise? What would be on offer? What can I order? I would say it's either curry or you go for a uh, a vegan moussaka. Ooh, I like I like a vegan moussaka. Brilliant, I do genuinely. Um, so that is all we've got time for. Thank you very much, Paddy, for joining us. Um, it's been a good insight. Um, we wish you all the best. If you are listening and you're heading out to the Alps and you've not got a catered chalet and you want some catering done for you, um, pop along to their website. It is um, hu.ski. Is that right? There you go. That's it. I, 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 five letter URL. I, I know. I surprised myself when I started reading it out going, <laughs> it can't be that short. It can't be that short, but no, it is hu.ski. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Paddy. Take care and have a good season. So that was um, that was Paddy Griffiths from um, Husky. Um, he's the CAO and he's a big entrepreneur, as you heard, Ian. And it's interesting that that's coming up now because obviously, um, as we record this, the B, um, not the BBC, um, Europe have brought in these new legislation about um, hosted workers and their rights um so it all affects that in total have you got any thoughts on that yeah i mean it, that whole thing that's just been announced recently does seem to be a, a kind of i don't know a bit of a, a red herring really because those a lot of the legislation has been around for a long time anyway the biggest question is what's going to happen after brexit which does seem inevitable and in terms of freedom of movement of workers and four chalet companies who are used to employing British staff and seconding them over to uh, Europe, it's highly likely that that will either stop or it's going to become a, a lot more expensive. Uh, and 
I think for that that whole, I think British can, skiers and snowboarders need to get used to the idea that uh, that whole chalet holiday concept is going to become more expensive or just going to come to an end. And I find it really interesting with the business that Paddy set up there with Husky, because part of that is they're doing catering or offering catering in resort. And I think it's really smart positioning now because tour operators, chalet companies, I think are going to come to the realization that they can still uh, rent out chalets, but they just can't afford to uh, take on the staff in Europe. And so they'll still be able to offer catering to guests, but through third parties such as his company. And so I think, you know, it's a really smart move by him to get that business up and running now. And in a couple of years time, I think he's going to be having a huge amount of business coming in. Yeah, I totally agree. It's the right position. And, you know, he's specifically, you know, currently there, they do like, it's like ready meals on wheels. So that's what they get delivered to the resort. So you just heat it up or cook it yourself. It's essentially all made. So there's no need for that in chalet staff. But I think he'll probably look at expanding. So he has got staff that can go into chalets. And I know there's lots of companies or people who are looking or still have done it like mildly freelance you know i can come into your catered chalet and cook um if you want to book me but that is going to grow as a market yeah yeah uh, uh, for sure i think it's the yeah all assuming that the the freedom of movement situation that we have at the moment comes to an end that uh you know there will be increasing amount of that and i don't think that that's really dawned on british skiers and snowboarders yet that 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 chalet holiday model is going to be either more expensive or just come to an end and uh, you know diversifying into self-catering properties or looking at ways that you can make chalets work as uh, you know nominally self-catering or you know engaging third parties like him and like if he employs extra people on the ground he's going to be doing it as a you know french uh, company and through the uh, the french market presumably with french or eu nationals as a way of uh, resolving that so, you know, I'm always impressed with people who, uh, you know, coming up with new ideas within the snow sports industry, but particularly new ideas that sound like they're going to work. Yeah, I mean, that was the interesting thing about it was it sounds like an idea that actually worked. There's so many ski ideas that um, you just look at and think probably won't work. I was wondering, yeah. do you think this could be everyone says it could be the demise of the small tour operator? Yeah, uh, as opposed to the large tour operator. But I would argue that potentially, if the catered chalet still wants to work and employ UK people, um, it would be up to them to register as a French company or become part French company, and then look seek to employ people locally, so pay them through the French system. But they could still potentially employ British people who've chosen to move to France and apply for the job that way. Um, so they're going to get more reliable, better staff applying. Whereas, you know, the bigger companies who rely on all those 18 year old, um, this is a terrible stereotype, all those 18 year old boys are pretty useless who just go and wash pots, um, who are never going to you know, register as self-employed and go through that system. Maybe it will be actually that the, the smaller companies can survive because they can staff it and the bigger companies will struggle. Yeah, I mean, interesting. I mean, I, I don't, from what the way I understand it, a lot of the larger companies are just now have massively reduced their um, their offering in terms of chalets. So, uh, you know, you might not be able to uh, quote me on this, although I'm about to be quoted. But I think, you know, Ingham Ski Total have cut down their chalet product by 20% for uh, this winter. You know, yeah, I've seen that too. Yeah, so other companies are just, they're already 
um, in advance, anticipating you know that that uh, the difficulties that are going to come up in the market, reducing the number of um, properties they've got to offer, and you know there are other smaller companies that you're talking about, medium-sized companies who see an opportunity because normally you know there was a period a little while ago where it was incredibly difficult to find a new chalet. And and people were trying to outbid each other to take a new chalet, and suddenly there's a glut of them on the market. And uh, you know, within contracts for new chalets, you know, smart uh, companies are putting in clauses in there that say, okay, you know, if uh, the euro reaches this rate, then you know the the price changes to this, or you know, if uh, you know Brexit occurs, or you know, freedom of movement ends on this point, then you know we have an exit clause within their own exit clause within the contract, and there's a lot of um, interested parties, i.e., chalet owners in the Alps, who are extremely nervous about uh, a Brexit. And, you know, there is this kind of working group going on the resorts themselves are aware that it could be extremely costly because you know a lot of these relatively small communities the person who owns uh, or the the head of the tourist office or the head of the ski school uh, are part of a family that also owns two or three or four or ten chalets that are rented to British tour operators and uh, you know they they can earn as much money from all of that as they do from their business uh, uh, or from you know, the, the civ- civic side of things in resorts. So it's extremely significant to them. If suddenly people stopped renting out, uh, you know, these chalets, then it would make a lot of difference to some of the local families in the in resorts. The the really good news here, Ian, is that Mount Jim is not in Europe, so won't suffer um, Brexit. So you can open your chalet um, in, in my ski resort. It's absolutely fine. It's out in Devon somewhere, yeah? Yeah, down in Devon, it's not it's not applicable. There's no snow. Um, so that is everything for today's podcast. Thank you very much for listening, Ian. Thanks for joining us. Thanks to all our guests, as always. Um, no worries. You, you did you did used to uh, say when are you next going skiing, but I guess you've just given up as it's June at the moment. Well, I can do that if you like it. When are yeah, you well, next well, I don't know. Are you going skiing this summer at all? Um, I was at the Snowdome a couple of weeks ago with my daughter and uh, my ah. 90-year-old parent, grandparents. They enjoyed that. Sorry, did your 90-year-old grandparents ski? Uh, no, they just uh, sat, they went out on the balcony and got a bit cold. Right, OK. And that was okay. nice for them. I am going to go dry slope skiing soon, I think. And I might be going to team for the summer, so I might get a couple of days well, in. There. there you go. In fact, I read only yesterday that um, summer skiing starts in 10 days. It must be starting in nine days in team. And it's open from the 23rd of June to 5th of August. So you will be going in that window at some point, will you? Um, I'm hoping so. It'll probably be that really first week if we go. If not, we'll just be going for walks. But there's loads to do in team in the summer, so I'm not too worried. Oh, there is, but I'll be I'll be very jealous of you if you get to go skiing because I actually don't have any plans to go skiing. So uh, I look forward to hearing about that. I am going to see... Um, I'm going to a La Rosière event next year because they, they're uh, expanding their ski area. So I hope to be able to tell you a little bit more about that in our next podcast. Oh, I'm interested to hear about that um, for many reasons. Oh, and one last thing, Ian. I, yep. went to the car boot the, I went to the car boot the other day. and the car I always like a car boot sale? A car boot sale. And right. A, yeah, I wasn't candy to bow jumping into a car boot. Yep. Um, I went to a car boot sale and I like to look around for a ski stuff that's on sale and i've seen my favorite bit 
of ski for sale at the car boot. It was a Laplan Super U bag for one pound. Wow. I go. mean, I don't know. Is that good value? How much do those kind of really bag for life things cost? Um, I think they cost a euro, so... They cost a euro, yeah. And they, they, you have to pay for them in the UK, don't you? I think the kudos of of wandering up and down um, your local high street with a La Plan bag probably makes it worth at least 75p. Did you haggle? <laughs> too, I never haggle. I'm too embarrassed. I can't can't cope with haggling. So you bought I that my wife for your ski memorabilia collection, did you? Yeah, absolutely. It sits proudly next to my teen casino bag, um, my um, Intermarche um, Sasfe bag. The actual, the best ones uh, that that we've uh, sneaked back from the Alps are Intersport ski hire bags because they're so they're built really big to be able to fit a bunch of uh, ski boots uh, in there. And uh, you know, not that you necessarily use it for shopping. It's always useful to have a super huge bag for life around somewhere or other but uh, yeah much better I, I, than the like bags yeah maybe i should be going to uh, more car boot sales and looking for, for for ski memorabilia i do buy the odd book on um on ebay i'm always kind of i like uh, the kind of the old um teach yourself how to ski books i've got a whole bunch of those well maybe we should do a book review okay yeah yeah i've, I've written a couple the uh, the natives uh, chalet chalet cookbook. I didn't obviously. I, I wrote it in conjunction with someone who knew how to cook. That was a that was a good read. Many of much of my time was spent reading that. Ian. Yeah, yeah. Head up to the British Library. They've got a copy of it there somewhere. Any <laughs> other, other copies there are? Um... That was the ski podcast because knowledge is powder. It was hosted by Jim Duncan and Ian Martin. Music was by Free FX.